Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, March 24th. On today's show, I want to offer some of my initial thoughts from the first few days of action at the 2022 Miami Open. Of course, it's the second half of the Sunshine Swing, all of us still recovering from the Masters 1000, 1000-level 1000 WTA event that just unfolded in Indian Wells. But of course, this is the joy of the Sunshine Swing. You get back-to-back 1000-level events, just about every top player in the world descending upon Miami to compete in this year's Miami Open. Of course, there is no Ashley Barty, and we covered her retirement at length in an emergency edition of this mini break podcast which you can find on our youtube channel as well as here on the mini break podcast feed was immensely grateful for uh to david kane for joining me at such a late hour but of course the tennis world plays on even without rafael nadal who's out with fractured ribs something we've discussed already on this show but certainly uh, hope we can get him healthy for if not the duration of the clay court season certainly by the start of roland garros as he has just played exceptional tennis throughout the start of this season. No Novak Djokovic in this Miami Open event as well. He is not allowed to travel to the United States until he receives a vaccination, which he has yet to do. That said, again, both sides of the equation. You get the Medvedevs, the Zverevs, the Tsitsipases looking to reestablish and reaffirm their spots at the top of the ATP rankings because certainly the Carlos Alcarazes of the worlds are coming, the Taylor Fritzes of the worlds, and all of the American men who've had so much success of late going to have the opportunity to do that again in Miami. And, you know, those Miami conditions, so vastly different than what you're going to see in Indian Wells. The humidity, the heat on court, the speed of the courts, obviously that's going to influence the play we see unfold. And I actually spoke at length about those conditions with a man on the ground and an expert in all things tennis, our friend, professional tennis coach, Mark Lucero, on an episode of the Mini Break podcast that all of you listeners can go find now on, excuse me, on the Great Shot podcast that all of you listeners can go find now on your Great Shot podcast feeds. But you know, those sorts of factors going to play a role, certainly, in the results we see at this year's Miami Open. And we get to see all the players you'd want to see step up in these, admin- you know, again, the young Americans. Opelka is from Florida. This is what he trains in. Ditto for the Tommy Pauls of the world. How does that impact the Sebastian Cordas of the world? How is that going to impact things this week? You know, Shapovalov, Felix Ogier, Alias Seams, Hubi Hercots, the king of Miami, the defending champion. It's going to be fascinating on the men's side. And then, as always on the women's side, sure, Sviantec seems to have emerged as the player to beat right now, but she's still 20 years old. And to play this level of exceptional tennis for, you know, three months consecutively, only the best of the best are able to do it. And certainly she has proven she is one of the best. If she rips off another week like she did at Indian Wells, it'll be an unequivocal discussion. She will have earned the new world number one spot made open to her by Ashley Barty, removing herself from the WTA rankings. But again, Conteve's on her heels, Sakari's on her heels, and all of these different players. Does Is there a Sabalenka bounce back? We learned, unfortunately, no Simona Halep as she's dealing with an injury, but pick a name out of a hat, as always, on the WTA side. Naomi Osaka, unseated. She looked exceptional in day one uh, of competition. I want to talk about why I think she could very well. I think she is going to win this. Well, 
I don't know if I think she is going to win this event. I think she's on the short list of two to three favorites as we look towards Miami. And certainly she's got a test in Angelique Kerber now in round number two. But that's honestly a match I expect Osaka to win. I will explain why on today's show. I also want to talk about, you know, certainly there are guys on the ATP side. There are the headliners of the next gen. But what about that next generation of top 100, top 50 talent on both the men's and women's side? Plenty of them having success Early here in Miami, I want to talk Sarundalos, Jack Draper, Linda Fruvertova, and Lee Marta Kostyuk. You know, that group of next-gen talent all finding success. Of course, there were other standout performers. Rusevori looked great. Putenseva looked great. Borna Chorich back on court, earning a victory. Ditto for Sloane Stevens. Plenty of early thoughts from the action in Miami. Of course, the reason we're able to talk about all of that here on our mini break podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you listeners day in, day out. We know you deserve a daily podcast talking about the many happenings across levels in the tennis world. That's what we try to provide you here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, the other reason we were able to do that is because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point, the lifeblood of this podcast and the lifeblood for so many in terms of finding equipment to help bring out the best in their game. And no matter what you're looking for, whether it be rackets, whether it be strings, whether it be clothing, shoes, you name it, they've got it. All the brands you're looking for from the big ones to the low key, all on their website. You go to tennis-point.com right now. You're going to inevitably want to purchase a thing or two because you've deserved it, folks. You work so hard. You keep yourself in shape. You do all these little things so that in those fleeting moments you do get to have on the tennis court, you can enjoy them thoroughly. Why not reward yourself for those efforts with a new few, uh, few new equipment items from our friends at Tennis Point? You go to tennis-point.com right now and on checkout, use the promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding 75 Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, that's tennis-point.com. Simple, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15 to let them know that we sent you there. With all of that said, a lot to discuss. And I don't want to spend 10 minutes on any player today because, of course, it's still the early round action. And if you use your 10-minute segment on Naomi Osaka now, right, what am I going to do in the quarterfinals if she's still winning? I'll have already done my 10. So I'll try to rapid fire through a bunch of takes through these round one and, you know, I suppose a few qualifying thoughts, really more Dennis Kudla relating in terms of how he goes from the Phoenix Challenger. Well, here's my one qualifying thought, that Dennis Kudla goes from winning the Phoenix Challenger last week to having to play Miami qualifying just to get into the event. He does play it. He gets into the event. He's dealt wildcard Jerry Shang, the up-and-coming rising, what, now 17-year-old who's just won a million matches on the ITF circuit, big-hitting lefty. Kudla beat wins all of those matches. The guys played about 10 matches of tennis in about an 11-day stretch, and, you know, he's won all of them. That's just a remarkable run from Kudla. Speaks to the depth right now in professional tennis. Do you know how high a level you have to play to do that sort of thing? And, you know, again, Kudla's like 97 in the world-ish right now in the live ranking, somewhere around there. That's the depth we see right now in men's tennis across the board. Uh, But okay, I guess that's my one qualifying thought with that in mind. Let's start with Naomi Osaka, who... I thought looked very comfortable in her first round victory. And you look 
for Naomi Osaka. Ultimately, it was a straight set win for her in her first match in Miami. She ultimately earned a victory over Astra Sharma, 6-3-6-4. I thought she served particularly well, and you look for her in this match. She made 60, uh, 59%, excuse me, of her first serves, which is far above her average for the season. She's only making 52% of her first serves this year. Her career average first serve percentage is 57.7. So again, to see her get back to that 59.2 number, that's just an encouraging start here in Miami. She also won 93.1% of her first serve points. Simply put, Astra Sharma did not have the return capabilities to get the point back to neutral. And Osaka was just teeing off on the plus one ball, whether it was the inside in forehand, whether it was the inside out forehand, the down the line backhand, the cross court backhand, moving forward behind that ball and hitting a swinging volley. All of the attacking aggressive early patterns that Naomi Osaka is always so capable of executing in her service games, they were all in form. She didn't face a break point throughout the course of this match. I don't care who you're playing. You look for Naomi Osaka to, and yeah, she was the favorite, of course. She should advance over Astra Sharma, but to do it in that fashion, 6-3-6-4, the thing that was I, so eye-popping to me was how many opportunities she had to break Astra Sharma's serve. And if you look throughout the course of the match for Naomi Osaka, her return stats, she goes 2 of 11 on breakpoint chances. She could have won that first set 6-1. She could have won that second set 6-2. She had plenty of opportunities. She just couldn't quite execute. She was going for big returns, trying to play aggressive, trying to assert herself, you know, uh, uh, taking advantage of the opportunities her scoreboard leads afforded her. And because she was so comfortable on serve, it just felt like if she could get that single break that in any set that she would win the set. And ultimately, she only gets one break of serve in sets one and two. But she had more chances than that. And she was in control from the start. And again, 6364 doesn't convey dominance. But if you watch this match, it was a dominant first match performance for Naomi Osaka. And that's the key was she was in control from start to finish. She looked comfortable from start to finish. She just looked poised throughout the course of the match. And that's the scariest version of Naomi Osaka. When she's locked in, how many times has she proven it? Four Grand Slam titles. Her best can be better than anyone else's best, particularly when it's built around the success on her serve. And I will continue to say, you look for Osaka here this year, a loss to Kudermatova in the Melbourne semifinals, a match uh, she had to withdraw from. So you throw that one out in Melbourne. I thought she looked good in her first three matches. She loses to Anisimova in a three-set match in Australia. Anisimova played the lights out tennis, and she lost 7-6 in the third uh, that's a throwaway result for me. Again, Osaka was right there. She had her opportunities in the third set. If you play that match 10 times, I think she wins it five times. That was just fantastic tennis for those of us who watched it. And then the loss to Kudermatova in Indian Wells. There were so many external factors beyond the tennis. I think you look for Osaka, even dating back to last year. She loses at the U.S. Open to Leila Fernandez in three sets, a match where she was up, I believe, a set and a break and had her chances. Fernandez goes on to make the freaking finals. You know, before that, at the Olympics, she loses to Vandrusova. Vandrusova goes on to win the silver medal. Like, none of these losses, again, perhaps compiled. They don't seem particularly impressive, but in a vacuum, you contextualize these losses. The only one you, you, she may even scratch her head about is she loses to Jill Teichman in Cincinnati in three sets, but Teichman made the final there. So I do think when you look at each Naomi Osaka result, Specifically, see, I'm going to waste my 10 minutes on Osaka early. I couldn't help myself, folks. I tried. Well, I'll keep it to four here. 
she's playing good ball. Not her best ball, but she is still playing good tennis. The hold percentage, 83.1% here this season. Uh, again, it's such a limited sample size, but that number would rank first now, particularly with uh, Ashley Barty's retirement. Now, the break percentage certainly needs to improve, but I'm telling you, Osaka's going to beat Angelique Kerber, and I think she is going to make at least the quarterfinals here. In uh, in in Indian Wells, you look at the tennis abstract singles forecast for her, Naomi Osaka, a 2.6% chance to win this event. They have her as a 17.8% chance to advance to the quarterfinals, but she's in the section with Annette Conteve, so ultimately they would have her favored, uh, Conteve favored over Osaka. This is a really fascinating section. Conteve, and Lee, Ali Risk, who earned a very impressive victory, straight sets over Jill Teichman, Alize Cornet, Leila Fernandez, who has not had the best sunshine swing, taking on a now finally returned to form Carolina Mukova. That is a fascinating match. Osaka's got Kerber next as well. That's this quarterfinal. That is interesting. Very, very interesting section of the draw, one we will keep our eye on. But again, Osaka does her part. She advances to set up the blockbuster match between herself and 13th seeded Angelique Kerber. For what it's worth, Tennis Abstract has Osaka as a 61.9% favorite in that match. But with that said, let's move on. And here's where we'll start to rapid fire through a couple of the next gen players who impressed me with their qualifying and run round one performances as a brother, which is how I will identify myself in this. And because I have two brothers, one older, Eric, one younger, Nicholas, who will never listen to this segment. But to see brothers have success, to see siblings have success in general is something near and dear to my heart. And the idea of myself and Eric, or much more likely myself and Nicholas, both winning pro matches in Miami on the same day, that would be the coolest freaking thing in the world. That's what happened with Francisco and Juan Manuel Serendolo. And I should say, for me, I would be the Juan Manuel in this situation to Eric's Francisco. It's a pretty similar age difference between the two of us and the two of them. I think they're a little bit closer in age than we are. But, you know, again, you can tell Francisco was the one who dictated, who had the big weapons, while Juan Manuel was six feet behind the baseline, just chasing everything down, extending rallies, making things physical with his older brother in their hitting sessions that they have such different styles of play is such a fascinating contrast. And yet both exceptional physical talents. And you look for Sarandolo yesterday, three-set victory for him over Talon Greek Spore to advance to the round of 64. A, to do it on the hard courts. And, you know, because certainly Sarandolo, the majority of his challenger success, and for those of you who are unaware of Francisco Sarandolo, I, I suppose I can provide uh, a background for you. You look for Francisco Sarandolo. Again, a lot of career highs for him over the past couple of seasons. You look uh, for him in particular, what he's been able to do of late. He's tried to make that transition now to the ATP Tour. And, you know, again, it's been a mixed bag of success for him. Coming into the week, he's number 103. But you look for him with his success here by making the round of 64. Francisco Serundolo now back, I believe, into the top 100 of the live rankings. Yep, he's at number 98 now by making this round of 64. I mean, it was disappointing, certainly, for him. You look in Indian Wells qualifying. He loses to the 17-year-old Jerry Shang, 7-6-6-4, in the Phoenix Challenger first round. Three-set loss to Arthur Rindernesh, but he wins the first set 6-1 there. And, you know, 
certainly was a good clay court South America stretch for him. He wins the challenger in Santa Cruz and qualifies, makes quarterfinals in Buenos Aires before getting knocked out 7-5 in the third against Diego Schwartzman in a match he very well could have won. Of course, the next week, Rio de Janeiro makes the semifinals again, where he gets knocked out by Diego Schwartzman, but gets impressive wins over Carveas Benia, Miomir Kesmenovic. Sarandolo's showing top 100 form, and of course, you know, Sarandolo doesn't turn 24 until August of this season, still just 23 years old, still a guy you feel like ascending towards his prime, hasn't found his best, but plays a very complete game. The forehand's the weapon, but he's got a rock-solid two-hander he can change directions with, he can swing through it. Now, sometimes, because he does get stuck six feet behind the baseline, that backhand will sit short on him, but he has the strength to absorb redirect pace on that wing. He's a fluid mover, comfortable first serve. You look for him. Hold percentage is a little bit lower, you know, 71% on the ATP Tour level matches that he's played, but of course, the majority of those happen on clay. You look for him at the challenger level, 73.7 average, but he was holding 81% of the time last season. I do think foundationally the serve, the plus one forehand, you know, the weapons he has, the physicality he brings, how complete a game he possesses because he is comfortable moving forward even if he does prefer to be six feet behind the baseline. I actually think the ceiling for Francisco Sarandolo is higher than the season uh, ceiling of Juan Manuel. And by the way, again, impressive performance for Juan Manuel yesterday. He ultimately earns a victory, I believe, in straight sets 6-3-7-5 over the deuce, Dusan Lajevic. Look, Juan Manuel plays fantastic defense. Physically, you know, he's going to track down at least three extra balls per rally. And the strength he shows for a guy who's not the biggest, it, it's extraordinarily impressive. If this was baseline tennis, you know, Francisco uh, Juan Manuel Serundolo would probably end up as a top 50, top 35 player in the world. That's how proficient and consistent he is and relentless he is from the baseline. It's a little bit harder for him to manufacture his own pace, a little bit harder for him to keep things simple for himself. Francisco has those weapons. He's able to move forward as well, a little bit more comfortable, though Juan Manuel is not a bad volleyer. Shows off the drop shots as well. I think they're both top 100 players for the foreseeable future. I think they'll spend the majority of the 2020s in that top 100. I'll take the ceiling and the weapons of Francisco, who I think ultimately will end up with just a slightly higher career-high ranking. But again, how could we not get excited about brothers? And I think Francisco and Juan Manuel, both winners yesterday, are two brothers for us all to be excited about. But with that said, let's move on to some of the other standout performers here early in Miami. I'm going to stick on the men's side. I want to talk a bit about Jack Draper. I know we talked about the young Brit last week on this show when Damian Coos joined me, but we see the challenger success Jack Draper has had now translating to the ATP level. And of course, we've seen Draper have success at the ATP level before. He had a standout quarterfinal breakthrough last year on the grass courts. Of course, much has been expected from the young Brit throughout his career, was one of the top juniors in the world. But you never know how that transition from the junior tour to the pro circuit is going to go. And you look for Draper, who, of course, got a wild card into this event. Draper, an IMG client, of course, Miami run by IMG as such. They offer one of their young stars a wild card into the event. He's now justified that wild card as he knocks off Jill Simone 7-5-6-1 to advance to the round of 64. Of course, you look for Draper here this season. He's been so successful, winning three championships 
challenger titles in Forley. Now, all of those were indoor hardcore titles. Why is that relevant? Because, of course, if you watch Draper play and, you know, indoor hardcourts, grass court success, you see a type starting to emerge. A faster surface, Draper's aggressive game style shines through. But to see him break down Simone, who, look, at this point of his career, Jill Simone is not winning a ton of matches. You look for Simone, in fact, just last season overall for him on the ATP Tour was obviously, and, you know, for Simone, who at this point, I believe, yeah, turns 39, uh, 38 in December of this year. He went 5-17 and 17 in ATP level matches last season, 1-6 in, in challenger matches as well. Obviously, he is not playing the sort of tennis he did at the start of his career, but you look for Draper, those three challenge titles he won, you can see the success and the confidence that's emerging in his game. He's just that much more confident hitting through his backhand wing because the serve, the forehand, has always been the foundation of the uh, 20-year-old's game. And by the way, excuse me, Jack Draper, 20 years old, doesn't turn 21 until December of this year. It's the weapons he has. The serve, the forehand, they're legitimate. And you look for him at the start of the season, and again, he's playing only indoor hardcourt matches. He's holding serve 87% of the time. That would be a top five number if translated onto the ATP Tour. Of course, now you have to adjust for the level of competition, but perhaps most impressively is he was breaking serve 31.7% of the time, and he was easily able to break serve again yesterday against Simone, who doesn't have the top 100 weapons and isn't quite the fi- doesn't have the physicality he obviously had in the prime of his career anymore either, but he puts a ton of balls in play, and he's going to change directions and ask questions of you, and yet Draper now possesses the physicality where unless you you have those elite weapons, he's just going to take it to you. And that's what he did. And that aggressive game style, that play on my terms mentality, there's just a place for that in the top 100. And you look for Jack Draper, who coming into the week number 146 in the rankings with this result. I mean, again, he's top 150 in the world. And now round of 64 for Draper. That means he's now, let's see, in the live rankings up to a new career high of number 136. 20 years old, folks. You look at the ATP Live rankings right now, players under the age of 20, Jack Draper, uh, under the age of 21, Jack Draper is the eighth highest rank under 21-year-old player in the world. Yeah, that's where you want to be at this stage of your career. And look, because Draper is, you know, from the UK, because he's British, he's going to get that Wimbledon wild card. He'll get probably another wild card, deserved wild card into Queens Club after his performance last season. He's put himself into ATP Grand Slam qualifying range, which is the next step you have to take if you want to make a top 100 push. And given the success he's had, when you win three challenger titles in four weeks and, you know, now are winning first round matches in ATP Masters 1000 events, you probably belong in the top 100. You probably should be competing in tour level events. Draper has very close, uh, put himself in very close position to earn that on his own merits. He'll get some wild card opportunities as well. Jack Draper cracking the top 100 is not only, is not a hot take anymore. I think it's very likely the case we're going to see uh, at some point this season. And again, you look for Draper now with this victory. He gets that opportunity to earn a signature win or play a signature match. Now, certainly it's not going to be easy against Cam Nori, but lefty on lefty, you know, certainly Nori, the much better version of Jill Simone at this point right now. I mean, I think he does have weapons, the serve, the forehand. He's going to hit his spot so well, get Draper's stretch, going to be able to absorb some of Draper's first strikes, but Draper's going to have chances to play offense. And again, 
Lefty on lefty is always an interesting matchup. That's going to be a fun one, folks. Tune in to that second round battle. But Jack Draper, again, impressing. And then, you know, to move over, or I guess to finish on the men's side, Brandon Nakashima looked very much the part of a top 75 player in his 6-1-7-5 victory over Sun Wukwan. And, you know, hasn't been the best start to Nakashima's season. You look for him in Australia, draws Matteo Berrettini. That's obviously just a brutal first round draw and, you know, drops that match in four sets. Also, you know, makes quarterfinals Sydney, beats Fabio Fodinini, beats Yuri Vesely. I suppose that Vesely win, 6-6, six and six, has a- a- aged quite well uh, before getting knocked out by Riley Opelka. But you look for him in the post-Australia swing. He goes to Dallas, loses second round to Jordan Thompson. You feel like even though that was a 5-6 and six loss, that's a match at this stage of his career. You know, neither guy have the biggest weapons. You would expect uh, Nakashima to be able to grind through Thompson. Wasn't able to do so. Loses to Manorino in Delray Beach in 7-5 in the third. Again, a close loss, but that's a match you figure he gets through. Loses to Gojewitz first round in Acapulco. That's obviously a match you would have favored Brandon in. Now, the you know, gets the win over Manorino, Indian Wells first round. Loses to Tiafo. No shame in that. I think round of 64 in Dean Wells, that's fine for Brandon at this point of his career. I think to lose first round to Emil Rusevori, even though it was a, a challenger first round loss, it was a first round loss to Rusevori, who's a top 75 guy, I would argue top 40 guy on hard courts and he was another winner who impressed on day one a straight set victory comfortable straight set victory over Max Cressy the, the it was really the the North American stretch that Dallas Delray Acapulco th- uh, you know three-week run for Brandon that's he would have wanted more from that because obviously the outdoor hard courts probably his best surface at this point would have been nice to just bank some points maybe make a top 50 push not have to play qualifying at all the clay court masters events he's still going to have to do that right now you look for Brandon was number 80 coming into the week with his victory here in the first round Nakashima again going to keep his spot in the top 80 right now Brandon Nakashima currently sitting at 75 in the live ATP rankings did you expect a top 50 push from him in the thir- first third of the season, I think if things broke perfectly for him, the answer would have been yes. But he sustained top 100, which really is all you can ask for from a guy. You know, again, Brandon Nakashima, 20 years old at this point of his career. I just did a whole rant on how, uh, you know, Jack Draper's right where you want to be at age 20. Well, Nakashima's even further at age 20. And he's a little bit older, but he's a little bit further up in the ranking. So I still think Brandon is on the right path, even if right now it's easy to see him fade into the background, given the overwhelming amounts of success of the Tiafos, Fritzes, Opelkas, Cordas, Brooksby's, Tommy Pauls of the world. Just don't forget about Brandon Nakashima, who, what was it, two straight finals last year in, uh, I forget where, in Mexico, and then in Atlanta, back-to-back. It was in Los Cabos and Mexico, back-to-back. He's played some really good tennis over the past 12 months, even if he hasn't played his best tennis here during this North American stretch. But those were the next-gen men, in my opinion, that stood out. On the women's side, I mean, there were a bunch. And, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the Brenda Fuvertova bandwagon for any 14-year-old to be winning ITF matches at the rate that she's winning them and having the junior success that she's having as well. Obviously, we're all excited about that fact. For God's sake, I did a joke of a segment on how they haven't been eliminated. She hasn't been eliminated from the GOAT conversation yet, but you know, you can make that same joke and that same sentiment about her older sister, Linda Fruvertova, who earned an impressive victory yesterday. Six love, six four over Danka Kavinich. And you look for Fruvertova, who again, 
only 16 years old, turned 17 in May, but you look for her over the last 52 weeks, 19 and nine. That includes a run to the 25K title in Cancun here in February. She won a match in Cleveland at the WTA event there, quarterfinals in Seoul uh, at the end of last season. She's had a ton of success here early in her career. And just, again, the firepower is there. The weapons are there. The mentality is there. All the check marks you want to see, the the fundamentals, the foundation, there's no glaring weaknesses for her. Of course, you want the physicality to get better. Of course, you want the consistency to increase. But she's freaking 16 years old, and she's always got, already got this sort of firepower, this sort of composure, this sort of ability to craft points and see patterns, the forehand and backhand. I think she's got explosion on both wings. Yeah, the serve sits a little bit short, but she's 16 years old, and it's just you know already top 300 in the world with this victory will be very close to Grand Slam qualifying cutoff rankings and it won't shock me if she gets a wild card into some Grand Slam at some point if not this season maybe next season I would what's a better sale job than the Fruvertova sisters getting wild cards I feel like if you're a Grand Slam you can sell that story two sisters incredible talents uh, who you know that next next generation of talent already on display I would consider it if I was a Grand Slam organizer, that's probably why I'm not. But Linda Fruvertova looked excellent yesterday in her 0-4 victory over Kavinich. And again, I don't have high expectations for her right now, but to see the level she's already able to play at, you just have to keep your eyes on the development of Fruvertova, of the Fruvertovas moving forward. I thought it was a really nice bounce back win from Ann Lee yesterday. And you look for Lee, who again, much like uh, Brandon Nakashima, hasn't had the best North American stretch. You look for her. She, you know, strong start makes that Melbourne semifinal, but then loses to Shin Yu Wang first round in Australian Open. Makes round of 32 in, in Doha and you know, gets knocked out by Sakari, but then loses to Shin Wong again in Monterey. Second round Indian Wells, she's knocked out three sets by Samsonova and then, you know, loses that first set 6-2 against Meyer Sharif yesterday, who, you know, the former Pepperdine Fresno State standout college tennis player has cracked the top 100 and is playing the best tennis of her career, certainly in her prime in 25, 26 years old is Sharif. But credit to Ann Lee. The 21-year-old American who, you know, has is no longer at her career high, number 44 she was at to start the season, but comes back and just gets solid, absorbs that first strike, starts changing direction, starts taking balls a little bit earlier in the court, using her speed to beat Sharif to the spot. Again, foundationally, I still like everything Anna Lee does on court and still just 21 years old and you know, again, I think the serve, yeah, the second serve sits up. You can say that about everyone. I think she hits her spots well. I think she changes direction so well with her ground strokes. And I think those ground strokes, despite she may not have the most size, you know, she's probably 5'5", five, five maybe. Um, but just again, how condensed and compact her backswings are and her ability to generate her own pace as well and to generate the topspin to keep the ball in. It's not just a flat strike. I think there's heavy action on the ball as well. I still stock hold friendly stock hold I still have a lot of you know again despite some of the struggles it's much like Nakashima no she didn't make the big top 30 breakthrough that I thought given her form at the end of last season these early hard court tournaments may have provided her but Anne Lee looked good against Kavinich, and again, I'm still holding stock. I think she does end the season in the top 40. I do think she ends the season at a new career high uh, and continues to take another step forward here in 2022. 
you know, some of the other ones, I guess the other one I would point to is Marta Kostjuk, who was excellent. And, you know, Kostjuk is obviously a player who has the weapons and has made big runs and big events, has made a second week of a Grand Slam already. But finding that consistency week in, week out, that is what Kostjuk is still looking for. And you look for Kostjuk, a 4-6-6-2-6-1 win over Ali Van Utvang, her, you know, her power won out, her consistency in the end, she was able to just, you know, steady the course find a 75 percent ball to move and think around the court and you know now she has a very fun matchup against belinda bencic who you know will hit the ball just as big as kostyuk probably not as dynamic of a mover and yeah bencic has the better serve but again kostyuk's going to extend rallies and dish some pace back on her own that's an interesting uh, first match for belinda bencic and that's absolutely a round of 32 match for everyone to keep their eyes on you know Again, there were a lot of standout performers and a lot of standout performances in round one. I could talk about all of them at length, but I imagine we're going to talk about more of them as we move forward throughout the week. So I'll be brief here as I go through a bunch of different players. I mentioned Emil Rusevori. He looked excellent in his victory over Max Cressy. And he's holding serve at a career high rate. He's finally over 80% in ATP level matches. He's at 81.7, which is still below the average of a top 50 player. But he's, he's breaking serve at 26%, which is a top 15 sort of number. And, you know, again, from a ground stroke perspective, I think it's Sinner-esque on the forehand, just his ability to easily generate pace. And whether it's a heavy top spin ball, whether it's line drive, cross court, down the line, he mixes in the short angle sometimes as well. I love the Rusevori forehand, and I think the backhand is perfectly condensed. I think he's gotten better drive on it. I think because he's taken a step forward as a mover, that he has more time on that backhand wing. He's able to swing through it, get his momentum moving forward. He's a comfortable volleyer. Not a great one, but a comfortable one. Again, the serve gets better. It, it's center point eight five. Like That's what I think about Emil Rusevor, and I think quietly he's been one of the most improved players here in 2022 and certainly you look for Rusevori. It, it started out at the start of the season where he makes what was it that semi-final run uh, I believe for Rusevori in either Melbourne wherever Nadal won that opening title and obviously on his way there it is uh, Nadal does knock off Rusevori uh, ultimately or excuse me it wasn't Nadal it was no it was Nadal four and five in that Melbourne semi-final and then you know played an outstanding five-set match against Felix in Australia round one and yeah Felix won that match in five but it wasn't that Felix played poorly it's that Rusevori pushed him to that point. He makes that final in Pune, really should have won that match against Jao Sosa, but gets knocked off 6-1 in the third. He served for that first set uh, when he was broken. You know, again, Doha round of 16, loses to Hatchinov 6-3. I don't think that's a terrible loss. Plays Indian Wells, wins his first round match, loses in three sets to Diego Schwartzman. I don't think that's a bad loss. Beats Nakashima in the Phoenix Challenger. You know, would have liked to see him beat Daniel Altmaier there in round two, but, you know, it happens. And now with a 3-2 and two win over Cressy, he served extraordinarily well, fought off all three break points he faced. Yeah, uh, I'm in on Rusevori, who you look now at the start of the season. Emil Rusevori overall, I believe, yeah, now 12-7 and seven overall on the season. 
it's a solid start for him, and he's back inside the top 80, currently inside the top 70 of the live rankings with his victory as well. He has some points to defend here in Miami as he had a good run there last year, Uh, but again, has solidified his top 100 spot and will be able to play ATP level events uh, throughout this clay court season. Has to earn some wins there to keep his spot, but he's in Grand Slam range. And the key for him, sustain this ranking going into the summer. Maybe even keep, if you can be top 70 going into the summer, you feel like with the City Open, Atlanta, Los Cabos, perhaps getting into a Cincinnati or a Canada Masters event or qualifying there, the US Open, and then all the indoor hard courts at the end of the season, if Roosevelt can just sustain this ranking through the clay court season, he should absolutely end the year top 50 with all that hard court play left to go. Uh, this was a good start for him to be back on that path. Some of the other ones, Kyrgios, straight set victory. He's locked in right now against Adrian Manorino. Just seems to want to be playing tennis, which I know that's such an artificial thing, and I hate when people question the desire, but as we all know for Nick Kyrgios, it's a question of his commitment. When he is locked in, he's always had the ability to serve his way into any match, even when he's not locked in, but physically just seems to be, and mentally, in the right place right now on court. He earns a straight set victory. How about just the return of Borna freaking Chorich? So great to see him after so many injuries. And of course, the Croatian used to, I mean, has had so many successes in his young career and so many signature victories, so many interesting slam and masters runs. And, you know, certainly had a great draw in in aging Fernando Verdasco, but he beats him four and five. And, you know, Chorich now matched up against number two seeded Alex Zverev. Those are two guys who used to battle all the time in juniors and Chorich a little bit older than Zverev had his number and Chorich beat him. What was that? 2017 US Open third round, 2016 or 18, something around that range when Zverev was finally a top 10 seed and felt like, you know, was still trying to make those when making second weeks for him was always a struggle at the Grand Slams. That was a very fun rivalry early on in both of their careers, and it's fun to see just another matchup there. How about Allie Risk? Really nice victory for her over Jill Teichman. I thought, again, just to see Risk healthy. I mean, she's a top 50 player, has those sorts of weapons when she's fit and able to take that ball early on the rise, flat down the line. Dennis Kudlai mentioned it at the top. Heck of a win for him, just physically to even be able to be alive out on court. Uh, Tenassi Kokonakis, he's a top 100 player. He's healthy, and that's the best thing. And he wins a first-round match. He belongs in round of 64s, taking on seeds and, you know, playing in big matches, on big stages. And he's back there, which is just one of the great storylines here of 2022. Uh, I thought, you know, again, some of the other veterans, Shelby Rogers, I should have mentioned her, three-set win, come from behind over Amanda Anisimova. She just outpowered tennis her. She was the fitter of the two players down the home stretch, and I know Anisimova's coming off of injury and sickness in Indian Wells, but credit to Shelby, who continues to show flashes. I mean, last season was the best year of her career, and she sustained a top 50 ranking. She gets to set her own schedule. She doesn't have to worry about qualifying. That's all you can ask for as a, what, 28-year-old, 29-year-old veteran on tour. So credit to Shelby Rogers playing some very good tennis, hitting the serve so well, swinging so freely with her ground strokes. It's great to see Sloane Stephens healthy, playing good tennis again. She advances Beatrice Haddad Maya, continues her winning ways, and Helena Kalnina continues her winning ways. Two players you felt like were on the precipice of a breakthrough, Yelena, uh, Yulia Putenseva and Ekaterina Alexandrova, have both... I don't want to say struggled, but 
they haven't taken that next leap. You know, they, they've kind of plateaued, that's the best word, in that 30 to 50 rankings range. And of course, that's the vomit zone, right? Because yeah, you're getting into all the events, but you're unseated. And yeah, you may win a first round match in Miami, but now you draw Contave or now you draw Sakari. And, you know, it's just a struggle. You To be the 26 seed, the key is you're just avoiding those players at least right away. And, you know, for Tenseva and Alexandrova to make those sorts of pushes, they have to get into round of 64s, have to give themselves those chances to maybe draw a 26 seed, maybe draw a 28 seed. And, you know, again, they both earned straight set victories, or excuse me, they both earned victories uh, to advance Putenseva, ultimately winning her match. In three sets, you look for ECAT, which I think is one of the underrated nicknames uh, on tour, but Ekaterina Alexandrova, a one and two victory over Jasmine Paolini. You look right now at the tennis abstract singles forecast for each of these tournaments right now. On the women's side, your favorite to win the event, not surprisingly, it's Iga Sviantek, 24.3%. That's the heaviest favorite she has ever been in a tournament of this caliber. You look at your second uh, favorite, it, uh, or second place, Annette Conteve at 13%. You start to look elsewhere. It gets a little bit more spread out. Maria Sakari, 7.7%. And, you know, Danielle Collins back in the draw, 6.6%. You've got a Simona Halep who just withdrew today, was at 5.7%. That's going to be dispersed. And of course, unfortunate to hear Simona Halep, Garbine Muguruza pulling out of the event due to injury, pulling out of the next couple of events as well. Hopefully, we both get them both healthy come uh, the French Open, come some portion of the clay court swing. But as always, it's a wide open WTA event outside of Sviantec, who really is the one distinguishable, her and Conteve are the two distinguishable favorites. And Again, that Conteve section is loaded. She's got Anne Lee next. Then perhaps the winner of Risk Cornet, Fernandez, Mukova, Osaka, Kerber would await her, the winner of that, to get to the quarterfinals. It's not an easy path, folks. And again, Annette Conteve's done a lot of winning, but does she have that signature title yet? She wins Miami. I think she would have a signature title unequivocally under her belt. There would be no more quabbling uh, about that fact. That's where things stand on the women's side. Again, seeds about to get in play, things about to get funky. You look on the men's side, same deal as the seeds begin to enter play. Daniil Medvedev, 27.5%, your clear-cut favorite, according to the Tennis Abstract singles forecast. After that, Alex Zverev, 15.9%. Then things get funky. Of course, Carlos Alcaraz has made a massive jump, and with no Rafael Nadal in the draw, perhaps it's not surprising to some of you out there to learn that Carlos Alcaraz, third in the tennis abstract singles forecast. He's got an 8.6% chance of winning. After that comes Yannick Sinner, last year's finalist, 6.6%. Stefano Tsitsipas, 4.3%. Andre Rublev, 6.3%. Oh, excuse me, Rublev, 6.3%. Sinner, 5.9, not 6.9. I'm curious. Yeah, Berrettini, 3.4. Kasparu, 2.7. Nori, 3.3. Where's Hubie Hercots? Your defending champion in Miami. Hubie Hercots, according to the Tennis Abstract Singles Forecast. And, oh, Felix, 4.2%. Feels like it's important to mention. Hubie, a 1.6% chance. Tennis Abstract not given him a lot of love, given his recent form. But again, outside of Medvedev, Zverev, and given Zverev's particularly recent form. Yeah, Medvedev's earned the benefit of the doubt in these conditions so much better for him than Indian Wells. But it's a wide open field, folks, as round two gets underway and we get to see all of our seeds in play. With that said, 
We will do our best to cover all of the action this weekend in Miami. Obviously, we've got broadcasts for all of you listeners in the college tennis world. It's our SEC broadcast tomorrow. That action, I believe, starts either 11 or 12, uh, either 11 a.m. or noon Eastern time. So, uh, you know, you can find that coverage wherever, uh, on whichever team you like's website, all of those SEC team websites hosting our Cracked Rackets SEC cross-court coverage. Of course, Sundays, we've got our Big Ten coverage. Things really kick off as conference play gets underway. You can follow all of that on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Of course, for updates on all things in the college tennis world, tune in to our Great Shot podcast feed or our live episodes of The Deciding Point every Tuesdays and Thursdays on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Of course, for the immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for my fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.